0: Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a lecture from Dr. Stephen Nichols on the topic of blues music and evangelical theology. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to check out the full Stephen Nichols collection on Canon Plus. Well, I guess since I am uh, moderating this session, I have the uh, pleasure of introducing myself uh, to you all. But uh, I'm Steve Nichols, and I, I teach at Lancaster Bible College, and I also am the chair of the American Christianity section. This is our second year. I mentioned that to those of you who were here first. This is our second year as the American Christianity section. We were for many years as the Edwards study group, and then we morphed when ETS sort of moved in this direction of sections and study groups more definitively. And uh, we thought as an American Christianity section, we can talk about some things that don't always get talked about in ETS circles. And one of those things we decided to talk about was, Evangelicalism and race. And so we put this panel together. Uh, we did have a cancellation, so Anthony Bradley wasn't with us, and Sean's paper, if you've come waiting for that, you missed it. It was the first session on, uh, Southern Presbyterians and the race question. My time slot is as it is in the program, but since we moved Sean up, uh, our third or final presenter, Professor Bacote, has graciously agreed to move up, so for those of you that need that, uh, editing of your program book now you have it all but uh, this paper is the mississippi delta meets colorado springs blues music and evangelical theology uh, this paper is fundamentally about perspective about allowing a different voice a marginal voice to speak it is also about encouraging a dominant voice a majority voice to listen now, it dawned on me, as I was listening to Dr. Lucas's paper, that the uh, racial segregation, the kind that he was talking about in the church, is officially, that type of racial segregation is of the past. But there seems to me to be plenty of unofficial racial segregation that uh, is all too much a part of the church. And this paper addresses that sort of unofficial segregation, especially in terms of how it impacts us hermeneutically and theologically. I've chosen two places as a metaphor for this conversation. But these are more than metaphors. These are literal places. The Mississippi Delta is the home of the blues. I'm especially interested in the delta of the first so many decades of the 20th century, the epicenter of a truly indigenous American music, the blues. And then there's Colorado Springs, especially of the latter decades of the 20th and now the first decade of the 21st century, the new epicenter of a truly indigenous brand of American Christianity, American evangelicalism. It has supplanted the former, yet still vital, Center of American Evangelicalism, Wheaton. <laughs> Sorry, Vince. This metaphor uh, can also be sharpened beyond the places. We can name names. On the first score, I'd like to mention a few theologians that we don't always talk about as theologians: Sunhouse, Blind Willie Johnson, and Bessie Smith, along with a few other friends. On the second score, the Colorado Springs score. I'm thinking of Focus on the Family, along with a few other friends. Now, this is an image that might just encapsulate what I mean from one of Focus on the Family's magazine magazines called The Thriving Family. Uh, if you on the tape can see the picture. <laughs> um, but it's interesting to look at this on a number of levels. Uh, on the one hand, there's one kid which is sort of the stuff that we criticize post-Christian Europe for um, and its negative population growth. But uh, secrets to a happy marriage, uh, etc. and then, of course, the inside is not a white child, but it, it sort of uh, looks to me, at least, as to have something to do with affluence as I look at that. And I think in terms of juxtaposing these two things, we're going to see that the one has created a sort of climate or a culture that impacts us hermeneutically and theologically. And I want to argue that we might be better off by listening to another culture. Before I go any further, though, let me say what this paper is not about. First, it's not about merely criticizing suburban America and its hold on the way American evangelicals think about and live out their Christianity. It's about that in part, but it's more than a sociological diatribe on the evils of suburbia. Second, the paper is not about white guilt, and neither is it about posing. I well realize how low my personal hip factor is, (laughs) I wear khakis and button-down blue Oxfords all the time, so I know my place. So what is this paper about? Again, it's about perspective. It's about listening to other voices. To put the matter plainly, the dominance of white, suburban, middle-class, too affluent culture within American, sorry, within and among American evangelicalism has caused us to miss things. To miss things when we read scripture. To miss things when we theologize or when we practice theology. In short, this dominance has caused us to miss things when we attempt to discern what it looks to be, what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ in our day. This dominance also causes us as theologians and scholars and leaders and pastors to miss something when we teach the church and the faithful in the pew, as well as when we display our work to the broader horizons of culture. Our limited perspective causes us to miss things, to miss many things. To get us started, I'd like to look outside of the blues for a moment. Draw upon the work of Alan Dwight Callahan and what I've found to be a wonderful book that he wrote, The Talking Book, African Americans in the Bible. It was published by Yale University Press in 2006. Callahan draws attention to Douglas's address, Frederick Douglass' address on July 4, 1852. In Callahan's estimation, in the address Douglas is denouncing, quote, the hypocrisy of a national celebration of freedom in a land of slavery. Douglas declares, this 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, but I must mourn. Douglas goes on to quote Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her coming, her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Fellow citizens, this is Douglas, above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions whose chains heavy and grievous yesterday are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. If I do forget, if I do not faithfully remember those bleeding children of sorrow this day, may my right hand forget her cunning, and may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. To forget them, to pass lightly over their wrongs, and to chime in with the popular theme would be treason most scandalous and shocking, and would make me a reproach before God and the world." Frederick Douglass goes on to refer to Psalm 137 as, quote, the plaintive lament of appealed and woe-smitten people. Douglass's experience enable him, experiences enable him to read the text in an existential way that I think one would be hard-pressed to argue was inconsistent with the experiences of the psalmist in the writing of Psalm 137. I hear the echoes of Dietrich Bonifer here in his hermeneutic of community and his Christological hermeneutic. The psalms are uniquely Christ's, Bonifer tells us, and through our union with Christ and to the extent that we engage that union, the psalms are ours. For Douglas, this psalm is his directly, not even mediated. He hears something, Frederick Douglass hears something in this psalm that I simply don't. One more example comes from Callahan, which for me has become a very insightful comment and quite helpful in teasing out the strands of a predominantly white American reading of the Bible vis-a-vis an African American reading of the Bible. Callahan puts it succinctly this way. The land that the Puritan founders called the promised land has been Pharaoh's Egypt for African Americans. Callahan goes on to argue that this fundamental point has resulted in a fundamentally different hermeneutic that works itself out in a fundamentally different way of connecting to culture and understanding the church. This sets us to thinking about hermeneutics in terms of a methodological approach. We could take, for instance, Obery Hendricks' book, The Politics of Jesus, Rediscovering the True Revolutionary Nature of Jesus' Teachings and How They Have Been Corrupted, published by Doubleday in 2006. I don't agree with many of Hendricks' conclusions, but I do find the questions he's asking to be helpful. He makes a singular point that poverty and social injustice and marginalization all serve as a significant backdrop for the life of Christ and the Gospels. I don't always see that. Speaking personally, I was weaned on more of a the poor in the gospels means the poor in spirit. Hendricks and Hendricks' African American sensibilities lead him to think and consequently to read differently. I still come to different conclusions than Hendricks. That is different exegetical, different theological, and even different political conclusions. But I would argue that reading Hendricks is good for me precisely because he is different from me. On the theology side again before we get into the blues let me just mention quickly the work of Joe Capollo and his The Human Condition Christian Perspectives Through African Eyes published by University Press in 2005 in their quite commendable series Christian Doctrines in Global Perspective. Capollo makes the basing point that as a westerner our uh inclination is to see human identity as primarily individualistic and primarily material. Then he makes the argument that African perspectives tend to see human identity as primarily communal and as immaterial or spirit. And then he asks a simple question, which of these is more in concert with a biblically faithful anthropology? All Kapolio is doing is asking us to consider another perspective as we develop our anthropology. Well, with these initial discussions outside of the blues, we can now draw some preliminary conclusions that we can then test against a reading of the blues. So here it goes. White supremacy is bad for hermeneutics and bad for practicing theology. And without making this about white guilt, I do think that race is an issue. Now, I'll change my mind after I hear Professor Bacot's paper Erasing Race. But for now at least, let me hold on to the idea that race is an issue. These issues of social dominance and supremacy, of hegemony versus social marginalization, I do think are an issue, and when we discuss them in American contexts, this is race-related. And I think as we look at the blues, the blues will only serve to show how badly this white supremacy is bad for our hermeneutics and our theology. So first, on to the hermeneutic score. I did this book on the blues, uh, getting the blues, uh, what blues music teaches us about suffering and salvation, published by Brazos. And in that book, I have a chapter on David's blues in the Psalms. And, of course, that's an easy target. Anyone can see how the blues can help you read the Psalms. These were all bluesmen. David was a bluesman. It's hard not to argue that. Actually, Adam, I think, was the first bluesman. Uh, Adam and Eve. It was actually a blues duet that was first. (laughs) But in the book, I also have a chapter on Naomi's blues and the story of Naomi. The story of Naomi and Ruth are, uh, are ripe for revisionist readings. This poor widow, Naomi, and her daughter-in-law, the foreigner Ruth, have been exploited yet again, I'm afraid, in some ways, at the hands of feminist or womanist interpreters. Let me offer, though, a different revisionist reading, what I'm calling a blues, mildly womanist reading of Naomi and Ruth. This reading sees uh, the book of Ruth for what it is, the story of a widow and her daughter-in-law that starts badly, gets worse, and then ends in redemption and promise and hope. I came across this in my reading of the Bible reading through Ruth, at least that year I got as far as Ruth in my reading of the Bible. That's a confession. I'm an evangelical, so I confess my sins publicly, not in a (laughs) box. And I came across this verse in in chapter 1, verse 21. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And I looked at that again, and I said to myself, that's a blues lyric. That's a blues lyric. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, I don't think I would have seen that had I not been working with the blues. A widow in the ancient Near East does not connect with me and my cultural situation. But listening to the blues helped me hermeneutically. We see this, this starting badly, things getting worse, and ending on a note of promise and hope. We see this all throughout the blues. This was an oppressed people, this people of the Mississippi Delta, the people of the blues. But even among this oppressed group of Southern African Americans, there were some even more disadvantaged. This dynamic was tragically at work in the biblical narrative of Ruth. In times of famine, everyone suffers, But then there are the widows and the orphans who suffer more deeply still. And one blues, Lightning Hopkins narrator and Moaning Blues, just gets up and moves from a bad situation. But not everyone can just walk away from a bad situation. Since few opportunities Other than physical labor awaited most blacks in that time and place at the Mississippi Delta, those unfit for it were driven to the margins of the already marginalized, and among them were the blind. Paul Oliver makes the case that there's such a roster of blind blues artists because they had no other means of survival. While not well suited for physical labor, they could strum a guitar as others worked. They could stand on a street corner or perch on a crate in front of a store and play for change. The long list of blind blues legends includes Blind Blake, Blind Lemon Jefferson, Blind Willie McTell, Blind Joe Taggart, Blind Jonathan Edwards. Oh, sorry, it's a joke. And I tried it earlier, and there were only about a half dozen people in the room, so I thought I could use it again. And, of course, the five blind boys of Alabama, the five blind boys of Mississippi, the five blind boys of Georgia. Just pick your state. More recently, of course, one thinks of Ray Charles. These artists gave voice to sorrow, perhaps of such depths that even the best of other blues musicians could not. Take this lyric from William Blind Willie McTell. Ever since my mother died and left me all alone, ever since my mother died and left me all alone, all my friends have forsaken me. People I even, I haven't even got. No home. McTell puts the matter succinctly. My life has been a doggone curse. Well, I said doggone. It was a euphemism. (laughs) I teach at a Bible college. (laughs) They listen to these things. To this list of artists, I would also add Blind Willie Johnson. While revered as a musician, there are likely not many who would label Blind Willie Johnson as a theologian, but I certainly would. Willie Johnson was born with sight in Marlin, Texas, in 1902. While he was still young, his mother died and his father remarried. When Willie Johnson was seven, his stepmother, seeking revenge after a fight with his father, threw lye into his face and blinded him. Unable to work in the fields, blind Willie Johnson took up the guitar, playing for the rows of sharecroppers picking their way through the cotton fields. He recorded only gospel, but in a style that was all blues. All blues. He made his first recording at age 25, Mothers, Children, Have a Hard Time. One of his most famous recordings, Lord, I Just Can't Keep from si- from Crying Sometimes, was cut in a hotel in Texas. In his inimitable, raspy voice, he sang, When my heart is full of sorrow, when my eyes are filled with tears, Lord, I just can't keep from crying sometimes. There is a raw authenticity here, that isn't always found in a world that prefers happy endings. Blind Willie Johnson, the other blind artists, and even Naomi just couldn't keep from crying sometimes. As we look at the blind musicians, we also see that there is another group that started badly, things got worse, and it ended with redemption and hope. And among this group we have the uh, women blues artists. One of these is Bessie Smith. Bessie Smith has been called the Empress of the Blues. She was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee on April 15, 1894, and she was soon an orphan. Her father, an itinerant Baptist minister, died just after she was born, and her mother passed away a few years later. Little else, in fact, nothing is known of her from that time until she turned 18. In that year, the Moses Stokes troupe passed through the town. Anxious to get out and move on, Bessie auditioned, landing a role as a dancer. At the time, the lead singer of the troupe was Ma Rainey, the so-called mother of the blues. It was Ma Rainey who would be a mother to Bessie Smith, mentoring her and would eventually lead her to the microphone. And Bessie Smith would soon surpass her mentor. While Ma Rainey dominated the South, Bessie Smith dominated both the North and the South. Like Rainey, Smith took many opportunities to sing on behalf of those who had no voice. As Christopher John Farley captures it, she raised the spirits of the downtrodden simply by lifting her voice. And what a voice she had to lift. Farley describes her voice first as a boxer, but then he corrects himself, as perhaps boxing is too inelegant a term for the melodious precision with which she spun out her songs. Boxing, however, may still be a good way to describe her singing. In fact, the boxing illusion works well on a much deeper level. Sidney Beckett said of Bessie Smith that, quote, "...the trouble was inside her, and she wouldn't let it rest." A young Mahalia Jackson heard that trouble. When I was a little girl, the future queen of gospel recalled, I felt she was having troubles like me. That's why it was such a comfort for the people of the South to hear her. She expressed something they couldn't put into words. Bessie Smith sang her share of love songs, but she also sang her share, Love's Lost, but she also sang her share of social protest. She sang of the ravages of the 1927 Mississippi River flood and Blackwater blues, and of the injustices of the penal system and songs like Jailhouse Blues. She could also sing of the plight of the orphan. No father to guide me, no mother to care, I must bear my troubles all alone. Not even a brother to help me share, this burden I must bear alone. But the issue that most often caused her to step into the ring to do her boxing was poverty and the challenges faced by the poor. In washwoman's blues, she put the drudgery of work to song. Me and my old washboard sure do have some cares and woes. Me and my old washboard sure do have some cares and woes. And the muddy water wringing out these dirty clothes. All day long I'm slavin', she adds. She offered what might amount to an anthem for the poor and poor man's blues, Mr. Rich Man, Rich Man, she thunders, open your heart and mind, give a poor man a chance, help stop these hard times. The song ends with these troubling lines. Poor man fought all the battles, poor man would fight again today. He would do anything you ask him in the name of the USA. Now the war is over, poor man must live same as you. If it wasn't for the poor man, Mr. Rich Man, what would you do? Though explicitly addressing the issue of poverty, Smith was also decrying racism. In fact, Angela Davis's intensive study of her music concludes that her songs, quote, articulate a consciousness that takes into account social conditions of class exploitation, racism, and male dominance. Davis further contends that this consciousness nursed by these songs would eventually turn into activism, the activism of the civil rights movement. In his book, uh, or in Buzzy Jackson's book, A Bad Woman Feeling Good, Blues and the Women Who Sing Them, He observes, quote, Smith's songs were important early sounds in the 20th century struggle for black civil rights. Not surprisingly, then, writer Ralph Ellison prefers to call Bessie Smith not the empress of the blues, but priestess of the blues. Bessie Smith died in 1937 in a car accident just outside Clarksdale, Mississippi. She was taken to the colored hospital where she was pronounced dead. She was buried in Philadelphia in the north. One other familiar voice among these early blues women belonged to Billie Holiday. Hildon Alls exclaims, quote, she couldn't help seeing what was wrong and saying something about it. One of the most controversial things she talked about was lynching in the song Time Magazine declared the best song of the century, Strange Fruit. The strange fruit hanging from southern trees that the song hauntingly speaks of is, quote, a black body swinging in the southern breeze. The song was first a poem written by Abel Miripaul. He gave it to Billie Holiday after he heard her sing in a club in Harlem. She first performed it in 1938, and then she recorded it in 1939. Miripaul wrote the poem after he saw a photograph of a lynching in 1930. Estimates were uh, vary, but somewhere around 3,000 southern blacks were lynched from the years immediately after the Civil War until the 1930s. When Billie Holiday sang Strange Fruit, it was often met with eerie responses by the audience. It's a song that leaves one wanting to sigh or perhaps repent, but certainly not to clap. David Margalick, who recalls a performance of the song at the Apollo Theater in Harlem, retells the story by Jack Schiffman, whose family ran the Apollo. When you heard the song before Schiffman wrote in his memoirs, you might have been touched and nothing more. But at the Apollo the song took on profound intimations. Schiffman continues, you saw in Billie Holiday the wife or the sister or the mother of one of the victims beneath the tree, almost prostrate with sorrow and fury. But then Schiffman reveals that the audience saw something far more. And Schiffman is not a Christian. In fact, he was a moderately practicing Jew. This is what he says. You even saw and felt the agony of another lynching victim, this one suspended from a wooden cross at Calvary. It would take that one suspended from a wooden cross. It would take the son, the man of sorrow, who would not just identify with us in our blues song, but would in fact remove our blues song. As we go back to the story of Ruth, we find that it was the son that is born, not just to Ruth, but as chapter 4, verse 17 informs us, the son that was born to Naomi, that would deliver Naomi, the widow, from her emptiness. It was the son that would take this life that started badly, got worse, and then would speak into that life A story of hope and promise. Now, listening to the blues, I argue, helped me understand the book of Ruth. A book that I had read many times. A book that I even remember being taught about in youth group. Perhaps to be used for dating techniques. (laughs) Since Boaz is, after all, the alpha male. Looks, money, charm, and, you know, graciousness. I wouldn't argue that listening to the blues is a prerequisite. But I would argue that we certainly can be helped. The Colorado Springs white affluent hermeneutic. All those have dashes are in quotes. And I just made that up. That should not be a prerequisite either for us as a hermeneutic as we read the text. Well, that's the blues and hermeneutics. What I'd like to move on to is very briefly the blues and practicing theology. And here I want to mention two big ideas. One is what I've come to label embracing the curse not so much the Luther idea of sin, if you're going to sin, sin boldly, and so let's all go out and embrace the curse, but the idea of coming to grips with our limitations, coming to grips with the ravages of sin, acknowledging sin as in fact a social evil, as having a compounding effect when sinners gather together in social groups. It was Bonifat who described this world as a fallen Falling world in his lectures on Genesis 1 to 3. And it reminds us that we do live in a world of limitations, embracing the curse. The second piece of theology that I'd like to look at, and these two are intertwined, is to visit this eschatological notion. An eschatological notion that I think is best described in the word hope. So as we put these two together, the embracing the curse, and understanding hope. Again, I think we are helped by listening and entering in, even if, if, as outsiders, this world of the Mississippi Delta blues. To do this, I want to look at Sun House. An elderly man sits on a stool in front of an audience. You sense that you are in the presence of a legend, watching someone and even something from a different era, a distant world. You sense that this man has something profound to give away, something born of a difficult life. With hardened hands and weathered face, he sits holding a guitar. He's not playing it. He's actually just using it to slap out a beat. Tell me, who's that writin'? His gravelly voice asks and then he answers his own question, John the Revelator. With more intensity, he repeats it. Tell me, who's that writing? John the Revelator? For a third time, almost impatiently, he asks and answers, Who's that writing? John the Revelator, wrote the book of the seven seals? You are left with the impression that there is nothing else quite like this. What's even more remarkable is, is that the man on the stool, Sunhouse, House, was discovered by accident, not just once, but twice. The first time, Alan Lomax trekked into the Delta in 1941 on a mission to record an endangered music. He had hoped to find the legendary Robert Johnson. Lomax wanted to record Johnson, not in some hotel room with a company's equipment, but in the field, on the porch of the juke joint, or the commissary, or perhaps on the porch of the cypress shack that he called home. Lomax, however, missed him by about three years. Robert Johnson was already dead and buried. Actually, if you look at the tombstones, he was buried six times. Nobody's sure which place he's actually buried at. Instead of finding Robert Johnson, he found Robert Johnson's musical father, Sunhouse. House. When you remember that Lomax's other discovery was Muddy Waters, you realize that there's no way Alan Lomax could have been disappointed in his trip. For Sunhouse, House, though, it was likely a bittersweet experience. Sunhouse House came to the blues much later in his life. He was born Eddie James Jr. on March 21, 1902, in the Delta town of Riverton, Mississippi. His youth was spent working the plantation fields during the week and sitting in the church pew on the weekend, on Sundays. Before reaching his 20th birthday, he became a Baptist pastor, but his soul seemed restless. Eventually, he would split his weekends, continue to devote his Sundays to the church, but he would give his Saturdays to the juke joint. He even left the Delta for a time in the early 1920s, wandered around, and he came back and taught himself to play a guitar. A lot rested on that guitar. Sunhouse House saw it as his redemption. A story is told of a grateful fan visiting an aged Son House convalescing in his Detroit nursing home in the late 1980s. The fan brought along a national guitar. The eyes of a listless old man lit up at the mere sight of it, and impulsively he reached for it. Son House had started playing the guitar some six decades earlier, performing at house parties and juke joints in the Delta in the late 1920s. House teamed up with Charlie Patton, himself also for a time a Baptist pastor and a blues musician, and Willie Brown. The three were given tickets to Grafton, Wisconsin, to record for Paramount House. They recorded six sides, among them Walking Blues, a song his musical protege Robert Johnson would record a few years later. It speaks of that restlessness, rambling and wandering that reverberates throughout the blues, an embracing of the curse. He also recorded Dry Spell Blues, which laments a drought in the South, My Black Mama, MO Blues, and Future Blues. The final song of these sessions became somewhat of a signature song for Sunhouse, House, Preachin' Blues. It has just a hint of sarcasm. House begins by telling us he's quote, gonna be a Baptist preacher so he won't have to work. <laughs> you ought to use that, Dr. Nettles, as an advertisement for Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. In the second stanza, he makes a reference to that other stage in his past. Uh, He was actually a convict uh, accused of attempted murder. He was let out after a year. The charge was dropped to manslaughter. And that conviction was a bit of a roadblock to his pastoral aspirations. (laughs) The real culprit, however, to his pastoral aspirations comes in the third stanza. Oh, I went in my room, I bowed down to pray. Oh, I went in my room, I bowed down to pray till the blues come along and they blowed my spirit away. It wasn't the fault of the blues. And the fourth stanza, he turns to the old standbys. Women's and whiskey. They were just too much for him. They would not set him free. In this song, uh, Preaching Blues, Sunhouse shows us This war that was at work within him. This war of the curse. Raging. As Sunhouse uh, developed his music, and as we come to the end of his life, in the last concert in the United Kingdom, the concert at the 100 Club in London, where he was sitting on that stool and banging out the beat on his guitar, he tells that same audience, in between songs, that he's heard the old blues singers, himself among them, who would plead, Lord, have mercy when it comes time to die. And then he said this, I don't want that. I want to have a little bit of his mercy now. Sunhouse looked for mercy, but apparently he couldn't find it. Going back to the 1930s, one of those Paramount Session songs, Sunhouse makes an impassioned plea for mercy. There's a drought, a dry old spell everywhere, he says. So he stood in his backyard, wrung his hands, and screamed, Lord, have mercy if you please. Lord, have mercy if you please. Let your rain come down and give our poor hearts ease. As Sunhouse and the other blues singers wrestled with the curse, they were not content to leave life under the curse. They looked and longed for hope. Now, in some ways, we find this message of hope in the blues itself. But we're better served when we leave the blues for a moment and go to their cousin, the spirituals. There in the spirituals, what may be implicit in the blues, the desire for hope, is brought right to the surface. It is in the spirituals and implicitly in the blues that this message of hope, this message of promise, this message of deliverance can be heard acutely and poignantly. Just to skip a bit. As we look at American evangelicalism, and as I look at myself as an American evangelical, in my context, I don't see the same longing, the same understanding of what Christ the Redeemer brings in terms of hope and promise. As I look at much of what American evangelicalism presents itself, it might be too, it might be off uh, message, but it might not be too far off message to say that it amounts to something like this. You have a pretty good life. Wouldn't you like a better life? And as we approach the gospel, this idea that because of the curse, we start out badly and because of the curse, things get progressively worse, but because of the son, we have hope and promise. It might not be too far off the mark to say that sometimes in our understanding and then in our articulation of the gospel, we don't always understand the depths of that. Now, my experience may not be indicative of American evangelicalism, and it's very poor scholarship to assume so. But I think we can all take this message to heart. When it comes to fleshing out the fall and redemption, I think we can do no better in our preparation than to engage the biblical narrative of the fall and redemption. But I also think we need to leave our therapy culture for a while and listen to the echoes of the Mississippi Delta. To put it directly, Listening to the blues can make us, white affluent evangelicals, it can make us better theologians. So in closing, some questions for us to ponder. How white is our hermeneutic? How white is our theology? And thirdly, can we benefit from quieting our dominant voices just long enough to allow some other voices to be heard These are initially rhetorical questions. I've obviously framed them in a way to prejudice my conclusions and answers. But these are only initially rhetorically. I think we can learn as we take these questions seriously. That we, and by which I mean a predominantly white, predominantly middle class to affluent demographic, that we can learn as we listen to other different voices. I pray that I have. Thank you. I have maybe 2 minutes for questions. Sorry I went long there. I never do estimate these things well. But if there are any questions, I'd be glad to take Yes, Vince. He he Sunhouse. Yeah, he was discovered once and then he was found as a uh, fire remember right? He was found as a, a washing dishes a second time and then he was rediscovered on the 60s folk tour circuit when these blues guys were all sent around. But from the uh 40s, 50s, he sort of disappeared and then, like I said, was discovered twice. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full Stephen Nichols collection now available on Canon+.